HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Daniel Bender, in for Carl Lee. This episode is part of a special series in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Our new issue, Volume 21.1, features articles on food and power, on care work, on chefs, restaurants, and culinary creativity. As well, Gastronomica continues to publish its COVID dispatches, short portraits of responses to the food crises of this pandemic. For the next six weeks, join hosts from the Gastronomica Editorial Collective as we talk with authors. My guest this week is John Broadway. John holds an English degree from St. Olaf College and is pursuing an MBA from the University of Oregon. He attended the Culinary Institute of America before working as a line cook in food and retail and in sales for a foraged foods purveyor in the Pacific Northwest. He joins us today from Eugene, Oregon. John, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Your essay, Around the World in 50 Restaurants, The Curious Irony of Hyperlocal Food, is a great read. It's a provocative read, especially now when the idea of going out to restaurants seems distant. You've done a lot in the business of food, John, and in the business of food studies. How did you come to think about what the world's best restaurants tell us about local food? Well, it's a good question. Uh, this essay actually stemmed from a, a homework assignment I had in my uh, business program last year. And we were asked to do a couple of journal journal entries, essentially sort of digesting what we had talked about in the business of food class. And, you know, I had worked in some high-end restaurants in New York City once upon a time, and I've always been fascinated by them. I think they can really tell us a lot about society and kind of where we are as, uh, as eaters, as cooks. And, you know, and I found this San Pellegrino list sort of particularly provocative um, for a number of reasons. Its, its scope is global. Uh, there's been some interesting criticism uh, about the list in the past that I always found 
didn't quite get at the heart of all the problems with with the list and what it represents and growing my awareness of the difficulties uh, that we are all faced with in the business of food at this moment in time uh, there's just something kind of a little bit myopic maybe a little bit kind of inside the beltway about the san pellegrino list that really kind of rubbed me the wrong way <laughs> so this is really yeah, my John, i really to- liked your the insider outsider perspective that you bring to to looking at this list but can you tell mm-hmm. us about that list for those of us who are truly on the outside of the world of 50 best restaurants gazing sure. in perhaps through the front window Wh- what's the list how did it start and how is it different from other ways of ranking restaurants? Yeah, um, it's an interesting question, and the answer is a, a little bit nebulous. Uh, it's sponsored by San Pellegrino, you know, the water company that's owned by Nestle. Uh, they'll tell you that there is a panel of over 1,000 culinary experts that gets together year to year to vote on what they think the best restaurants in the world are. Uh, They've been doing this since 2002, so they've been around for a while. It's different from other guides like uh, Michelin or um, Goat Meow or any of the more regional guides uh, that dish out stars. This is just a straight ranking, and they have the top 50 in the world. They actually rank uh, 100 top restaurants in the world, and they have other lists like best restaurants in Asia, best restaurants in South America, and other geographies. And um, they used to get together once a year to have a big party to celebrate the list. The chefs would be there, and they'd all... You know, <laughs> a lot of high fives and that kind of thing. Of course, in COVID, they didn't do a list uh, for the past year. Um, but it's a really interesting, they definitely keep their fingers on the pulse of the latest and greatest in the world of haute cuisine. And uh, you get to see some interesting trends develop over time if you keep an eye on the list. What, what are some of the trends that you've been seeing over the last few years? Yeah, the one that I talk about most in the essay is the, the shift from what was known as molecular gastronomy or you know, modernist cooking, it was sometimes called, into this more uh, hyperlocal uh, cuisine. And you can see this from the restaurants that sort of circulated at the very top of the list. For a while, it was dominated by places like uh, El Bouilly in Spain, uh, the Fat Duck in uh, the United Kingdom, and even Alinea in the United States, these kinds of temples of modernist cooking. And uh, you know, even, even more broadly, uh, it was a movement in Basque cooking, the new Basque cuisine, was headed by people like uh, Juan Marie Arzac and later Elena Arzac, the Roca brothers, and of course, Ferran Adria at El Bouilly. They pioneered this uh, new way of cooking that was very technically intensive, used all these kind of cool um, science-y things, you know, people that know, um, uh, use like liquid nitrogen cooking and uh, the rise of sous vide as a cooking technique. A lot of that stemmed from their work, and then that got pollinated in the United States from Grant Ackett, who spent some time at El Bouilly after cooking at the French Laundry. He started uh, Alinea in Chicago, which sort of became the standard bearer for molecular gastronomy in the United States. But those restaurants have all kind of faded. Um, they introduced a new rule a while ago where once you were the number one restaurant, you wouldn't appear on the list anymore. It'd sort of be added to like the ultimate hall of fame of restaurants uh, but the new uh, top of the list is uh, slowly taken over by restaurants in the mold of noma uh, which a lot of people have heard of it's in copenhagen sort of the first entry into the category of new nordic cuisine uh, which was an attempt to kind of take back uh, regional cuisine in a not particularly agriculturally productive part of the world and kind of reappropriate and redefine a lot of the 
sort of ancient techniques and ingredients that were sort of missing from the culinary landscape before then. So now we're starting to see other restaurants in that vein. Uh, sort of the, <laughs> the craziest example of that was Favakin, which is now closed, but it was in way northern Sweden. And uh, Chef Magnus Nilsson ran that kitchen for a while, and it, you know, it was a a true manifestation of hyperlocality. It took a, a journey of, you know, almost full day plus to even get to the restaurant, and you were practically required to spend the night there. There's just no way you could possibly get back after the meal. Just a really interesting um, manifestation of this new hyperlocal ethos. What is, for you, what what does hyperlocality mean as opposed to say, a local restaurant where I can go? Where it's generally things from, say, Ontario, I'm speaking to you from Toronto. What is the difference there between that kind of locality and hyper-locality? Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot that could be said about this. Hyper-local within the context of haute cuisine, I think, might mean a slightly different thing than locality and sort of your, your everyday restaurant. And a lot of this will touch into issues of the the food supply chain sort of in general and just how difficult it can be for sort of a quotidian restaurant to to follow this kind of hyperlocal ethos. I I think what we see within the hyperlocality in the San Pellegrino list is, well, a number of things. First, there's the emphasis on ingredients. Magnus Nilsson of Favikin gave an interview, a talk at Google, and one of the first things he said was, you know, a question I get all the time is like, why open a restaurant you know, out in the middle of nowhere? And he said it was because you could get a better quality of ingredient out there, which is a really interesting repudiation, <laughs> if you will, of uh, the global food supply chain. I think hyperlocality also, uh, at its core, is almost a repudiation of the globalized food system. Uh, just sort of the claim that no longer do you need to source the very finest delicacies from France or Italy, you know, foie gras, truffles, caviar, you know, that kind of thing. Rather, uh, true luxury, true exclusivity can be found, you know, just outside your front door. And of course, you know, it's not quite that easy. It helps if you're in some, you know, pristine, undisturbed part of the world and you have all this culinary know-how. And you know, there's a lot of other stuff that goes into it. But hyperlocality also includes a certain amount of uh, of technical skill, um, you know, your average locally owned restaurant probably isn't doing some of the preserving techniques, the fermenting techniques. You know, Favakin had an extensive root cellar, so I mean, nothing grew in the winter. Of course, they had to preserve all this food and then deploy that elaborate tasting menus. I mean, your average restaurant doesn't really do any of that stuff, nor does it really have the capacity. So there's a lot of extra stuff that goes into hyperlocality to make it extra special. But I think an important point here is the the difficulty of sourcing locally if you are just a a run-of-the-mill. And I don't mean run-of-the-mill in a derogatory sort of way. I just mean in a restaurant that costs, you know, 10, 15 bucks a head. I mean, the food system just doesn't really facilitate any kind of local procurement. You have to have some sort of relationship with farmers, and you know, it can get quite complicated, time-consuming. Then, of course, that drives your prices up. Then all of a sudden, you're no longer an everyday restaurant for the majority of people. I, mean, I myself uh, helped edit a, a study in my hometown of Marquette, Michigan. Uh, it's been an effort recently to promote 
sort of a, a localized form of agriculture and then celebrate it in local restaurants. But and talking with chefs, it, it's just really hard for them to do. I mean, you don't get the standardization, you don't get the cost control, you don't get the, the easy labor that you get by just buying off the Cisco truck. So I, I think the gap between hyper-locality and, and everyday locality really has a lot to do with the resources that are available at your disposal. You know, two to three hundred dollars ahead, you have a lot more capability to uh, to do stuff with you know, exotic you can spend a lot of time out in the woods picking, uh, picking <laughs> you certainly can lichen. right? But or you, you know, it, it, it makes me also also think about that a that a hyper local supply chain means on some level a global customer supply chain. You know, yes. you, you write about El Bulli and and, and um, many others have focused on the creativity at El Bulli, and um, your your take is quite different, provocatively different. Let me read the listeners a quote from your essay and then ask you, John, perhaps to follow up. Sure. You write, it is unlikely a local resident excuse me, will pop by for dinner when the wait list is overbooked indefinitely. Eating at these restaurants is a luxury monopolized by those with the means not only to pay for them, but to travel to them as well. Is that that global customer supply chain? Yes, I, this is really like almost the crux of the essay and something that I think is worth spending some time you know, thinking about and talking about. Um, I say later in the essay that nowhere in the critical commentary on restaurants is the role of the consumer uh, really even considered. You know, there's a rich discourse of you know, ingredient supply chains, you know, what ingredients are used in a restaurant or how they're deployed or where they come from, but nobody really thinks about the consumer at all. They just kind of show up and <laughs> have their meal, and that's really all that the people think. And, and to an extent, that's understandable. It's definitely beyond the responsibility of any chef to, I mean, you wouldn't expect them to put a bouncer outside the door and say, you know, if you're not sourced from within 50 miles of this restaurant, you're just not welcome here. I mean, that would be absurd. But the trouble is, particularly with guides like San Pellegrino, is they advertise these restaurants on the global scale, and when they're raised to this degree of fame or infamy, even uh, people from all over the world want to go to them. And the uh, example I give in the essay, you know, going back to El Bouilly, is they would get, I, I couldn't believe this myself, over a million reservation requests annually, which is just staggering. Uh, you know, the, where, where El Bouilly is, is a town of, I have the number in here, and yes, I think it's like 19,000 people. So, I mean, consider the uh, the gulf between <laughs> the people that want to eat there, the people that actually live in, in the general area. This is exacerbating the places. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. But I was just going to say, John, wouldn't it be extraordinary to geocode, just, just put little pins on a map of where mm -hmm. all those requests were coming from and to see what percentage of them were within that that mythical 100-kilometer. We talk about 100-kilometer foods, but do you, can we also talk about 100-kilometer customers? You know, yeah. the interesting thing about Obuli is is I, I've never eaten there. I, I never had a chance to eat there. I was <laughs> never one of that select million who who could afford the, the entrance fee. But interestingly, I know where it's located. Well, where it was mm -hmm. located in, in Rosas, Catalonia. It really does seem to matter. I, I found myself reading the article and thinking, why do I know that? Why do I know where it's located? Do you think location is part of the brand, even I as do. local people are not part of the customer base? 
Yes. I, I think from a business standpoint, if you're a chef that wants to op- own and operate a high-end restaurant, you know, as a business person, you have to think about differentiation. You know, like what's your angle to to approach customers and why would they come to your you know, super expensive restaurant as opposed to somebody else's? And I think location plays a big part in terms of being a, a differentiator. You know, if you are located in some interesting part of the world, I mean, you know, Rose's you know, I'd never been there, of course, but it looks like a you know <laughs> a beautiful uh, seaside. I believe it's on on the coast, a coastal town in Spain. I mean, who wouldn't want to go there? And if the reason why you're going there is to have this unforgettable once in a lifetime dinner, then the place that it's in is almost a value add if you're the kind of consumer that can afford these sorts of things. And you know, when you see restaurants, you know, Isha Franco is another. Um, example I deploy in the paper. It was profiled in the television show Chef's Table. It's in Slovenia. I mean, no no disrespect to Slovenia, of course, but I don't really know of a lot of reasons why people might travel there uh, apart from going to Isha Franco. And I think that's sort of part of the joy of the experience if you're a consumer, you know, getting to go to places, but you know, knowing that when you arrive there, you're going to have this you know, unbelievable culinary experience. I, I do think the location is very much part of the brand. And, you know, chefs do capitalize on this, you know, not, in a, um, in, not in an exploitive sort of way, but you know, it's just part of the, the value add for the restaurant. You know, you mentioned, you, you used the phrase once in a lifetime meal, which, which it, it certainly would, I would think I would need a longer life to enjoy that once in a lifetime meal. But you do... Is it a once-in-a-lifetime meal? In fact, hasn't been part of the effective lists like the 50 best created, in effect, uh, an around-the-world itinerary for for the rich and hungry? Yes. I, you know, that's a fair point. I, I would, you know... Eating at LBE, I would say, is you know, no matter who you are, is going to be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for the simple reason that you know, at a million reservation requests annually for only a couple hundred spots in the restaurant. I mean, unless you have some sort of inside track, I'm not saying that's impossible, but <laughs> but yes, you're you're a hundred percent correct that effectively what San Pellegrino has created here is a, a laundry list for any globe-trotting gourmand to you know tick all the boxes. Uh, as an example, I give in the paper. Um, which an article that I found just really fascinating for a lot of reasons. Uh, There's a a gentleman, uh, I won't mention his name here, but he was profiled in, I believe it was food and wine. And, uh, you know, of course he worked in international finance and uh, he made it his goal to eat in all 100 restaurants on the San Pellegrino list. At the time of the interview, he had eaten at 99 of them. And he went so far as to employ a team of 16 people to help call his one remaining restaurant and to secure a reservation there. And I mean, that's just not something that you know your average food enthusiast is ever going to be able to do. I, I mean, reaching those hundred restaurants, you know, having a, a team of underlings to do that sort of calling for you. I mean, it's it's all a bit absurd. But I mean, Sam Pellegrino will, will tell you themselves if you go to the About Us page on their website, uh, it. it bills itself, I'll I'll quote directly here, the world's 50 best restaurants earned its legitimacy as a compass for fledgling gourmets, unveiling up-and-coming chefs and culinary trends, showcasing the subtlety and complexity of various cuisines from around the world. And I feel like this does the restaurants themselves a great disservice as part of the critique that I try to make here, that these restaurants and what they represent in terms of being a, a better way of sourcing ingredients, you know, an, an aberration from a sort of faceless global supply chain that in some ways is grounded upon 
human misery and alienation. I mean, to treat this as just something to, to check off your list, I, I don't think does anybody any good. I don't think it does the chefs, the um, it doesn't do them the honor that they deserve for, for coming up with these creations and, and operating these restaurants. And I, I think it just it cheapens the whole experience. I, you know, the closing critique I try to make is that, you know, hyperlocality or even I, I would extrapolate and say oh cuisine more generally should be more accessible to everyday people. I, I do think there's a, a sort of an art gap in the world right now. People just aren't. Uh, there's just not enough beauty in the world. And it, it just seems to me sort of cruelly ironic that these restaurants that are trying to revitalize the very notion of hyperlocality are just getting uh, co-opted by the 1% and just sort of passed around like little collectibles or playthings. It's a shame. How many, how many once-in-a-lifetime meals are you supposed to have in a single lifetime? John, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back with, with John Broadway in just a moment. My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I am able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected, and I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to Cheeselandia.com. And we're back. This is Meant to be Eaten with Daniel Bender, talking with John Broadway about his article Around the World in 50 Restaurants, The Curious Irony of Hyperlocal Food, which is available in the forthcoming issue, issue of Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. John, you actually worked for a while in local food foraging, am I correct? I sure did, yeah. Who, who were you selling to and, and who did you want to sell to? <laughs> was there a bit of a gap at times? You know, it's a bit of a loaded question. Uh, I'll just hope my former employers aren't going to be listening in here. Uh, I, well, you know, I can share two different stories about this. Uh, the first kind of sales job I had within the food industry was for a company in New York City. It was very small. And we sold a lot of luxury ingredients directly to some of New York's best restaurants. We had a really amazing truffle connection. So we sold you know, white truffles, black truffles. Uh, we sold a variety of different caviars, smoked salmon, you know, game birds, that sort of thing. And uh, <laughs> it was every bit as strange a world as you might imagine it was, you know, but, but this it was a different kind of experience. Uh, you know, like Restaurant Danielle was one of our big customers, or Jean-Georges von Gerichten and people like that. You know, I, I can't say at that time I really had any sort of intention for who I would prefer to sell this stuff to, sort of, you know, whoever would buy <laughs> was a viable target in my um for me at the time. Uh, later on, when I moved out to the West Coast, worked for this forage foods company, and we had really interesting connections out in the, the woods of the Pacific Northwest. And we sold a lot of chanterelles and morels, wild mushrooms, uh, you know, fresh seafood out of the Columbia River, that kind of thing. Uh, but I was in the retail operations side, and 
you know, I had some success selling these mushrooms to clients like Whole Foods and, uh, and other retailers, but I, I was, you know, I, I think this is where you kind of have to talk about, you know, capitalism a little bit. I mean, as a business, as a business person, as a salesperson, I, it was my brief to sell this stuff to anybody that would pay for it. You know, it really didn't matter who and any sort of notion of, uh, where the product might end up or, it was just completely beside the point. You would never say, I would never say to my boss, like, here's a person that's willing to buy a couple thousand pounds of these mushrooms, but I just don't think we should because sort of violating some kind of, you know, moral or ethical code about like, where we should distribute these mushrooms and you know, all that kind of stuff. And that would just never come up. And so let's yeah. talk about capitalism a bit. Yeah, let's. You're, you're right. Uh, in the face, I, I love the fact that we're talking about capitalism and the 50 best restaurants in the world. Mm -hmm. But you write, quote, in the face of enormous challenges to the food system alongside staggering inequality, the global elite have hijacked the restaurants, restaurant world's best and brightest to serve their own ends. Capitalism is how I've ever heard it. But are chefs complicit in this? Are mm. they victims of this um, around the world journey? Uh, maybe one way of thinking about that is, you know, you often hear the story of chefs who refuse to be in Michelin. I've never mm -hmm. heard of a chef who's refused to be on the 50 best list. So that raises <laughs> that question of complicity. Yes. Oh, there's a lot to talk about here. Um, I, I think first, you know, just to put some facts and figures behind uh, sort of our current food situation, I, I, I think it's just worth sort of considering um, what it is we're dealing with. I mean, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations uh, came out a couple of years ago with a study that said a whole third, a whole third of Earth's topsoil is already degraded and all of it could be gone within 60 years. And concurrently, here in the United States, I, I don't know if the situation is much better in, in Canada or Europe or anywhere else. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention uh, stated that the national rate of suicide amongst average farmers is one and a half times the national average. A uh, University of Iowa study found that food and ag workers are three to ten times more likely to commit suicide than people in other fields. It was just staggering stuff. And, and concurrently, um, you know, inequality, again, here in the United States, maybe this is worse than in other places, but it was that sort of infamous study the Fed put out a couple of years ago. You know, one in four Americans have to either borrow or sell stuff to cover a $400 emergency. And now we're talking about meals that cost, you know, $400 per person, you know, without beverage in a place that you have to pay several hundred more dollars to even get to, that meal lodging and all this other stuff on top of it. So when we talk about these restaurants, you know, the sort of extreme aberration from the norm that these places represent, you know, it really can't be overstated. These are really, you know, the most exclusive of the most exclusive and, and represent a, you know, an experience that most people is just completely beyond anything that they could you know, uh, hope to, to experience. So I, I think the real irony here, I mean, just, just consider the cycle of hyperlocality. I mean, once upon a time, you know, everything was hyperlocal, right? And, and I was, I'm not saying that that was some sort of idyllic utopia. I mean, obviously, there are many problems in the past, 
discussion about privilege and, and that sort of thing. But you know, once upon a time, in fact, everything was grown locally, for better or for worse. And then the capitalist class comes in, and there's innovation and progress putting progress in air quotes here. And we devise these elaborate food systems and you know, capitalists always depress. So you know, the money rolls out of rural areas and into urban centers. And now sort of, you know, fast forward many, many years. And it's as if the capitalist class is saying, well, hang on a second. Like we really had it right back at the beginning. You know, everything should be hyperlocal and I'm willing to pay, you know, thousands of dollars to experience this hyperlocality that I myself moved us away from i just think it's so, tremendously do you think that's do you think that's part of the way then that that these restaurants that are valorizing so profoundly valorizing the hyper local for both ethical and taste reasons and indeed as, as you're pointing to blend the ethical and the, the questions of taste are they part of the ways in which local food actually becomes mobile and is imported into global systems of value? Is it a long way from the case of quinoa, from the case of the 50 world's 50 best? Yeah, yeah, I, I deploy the quinoa example uh, almost in an effort to kind of absolve chefs, you know, getting back to your earlier question, you know, are chefs you know, sort of culpable um, for for this situation? And I, you know, I, th I think we have to talk about capitalism here again. It's just sort of unclear, you know, from a chef's perspective, if you're sort of creative person with all the drive and talent necessary to operate a restaurant of this caliber. And I really do think chefs are have to deploy probably the widest skill base almost of, of any group of people that I know of. You have to be a man manager. You have to be an artist. You have to be a business person. You have to do all of this stuff. So the, they've got a lot on their plates, you know, literally and figuratively here to be <laughs> worried about. But you know, sort of encapsulated within the move towards hyperlocality is sort of this idea that you know, the food system is broken and we ought to be doing some things uh, to change it. And I really do feel as if these chefs are trying uh, to show us sort of a, a new or a better way forward. I mean, it's not exactly a new way forward, but it is a, a deviation from the norm. And I don't think they're, it's not really their fault that their efforts are, are co-opted in this way. You know, I, I do give some examples in the essay of uh, your sort of charitable efforts that a lot of these chefs are involved in and you know, other endeavors outside of the restaurant that help build their own you know, personal brand. Or, you know, they, they're very aware that there are a lot of issues uh, going on in the world. I mean, Dan Barber is a really great example of this. I mean, the guy writes books. He tries to preserve heirloom seeds. I mean, he's really doing about everything a person could do all while operating, you know, not one, but two <laughs> restaurants. And, you know, I think the, the real problem is just that by the very nature of these restaurants and the, their rise to fame and ratings guides like this, they just don't really have a way to get out of the capitalist system that already accounts for all of their progress. I mean, whatever they do will have a price premium slapped on it. I mean, it, it's just very difficult to sort of maneuver your way out of this as a chef. The quinoa example, you know, there's a hyperlocal food uh, that rose to global prominence, and it really did nothing for the people that uh, that produced it. I mean, as is so often the case in agricultural systems, all the, the profit and the economic growth is sort of moved elsewhere, and the people that actually grow the stuff are just as impoverished as they were before the global boom. And I mean, it's but not to say they that they don't any, have the quinoa. 
Uh, yeah, exactly. And now they don't even have the stuff that <laughs> they have to export all of their best production. So now they eat you know, rice and pasta and other stuff instead. So you know, it's just very difficult to find any kind of linear path for, for a chef or, or anybody that's interested in a hyper-local product um, to sort of advance it in a way that's actually going to be good for the location that produces that food. So a final final question for me. You know, you, you I, I really like that you bring up the chefs like Jose Andres and Massimo Batura and others who are who recognize that their restaurants are also critiques of of a capitalist system, even as that they are on some level forced to be part of it. And you end your essay by evoking, you know, that great art should be accessible. So should great food. But how? Yeah. How indeed. I mean, <laughs> it's a conversation that will go sort of well beyond um, food. I mean, I would contend that I, I would certainly never say that these restaurants are overpriced. You know, I don't know that a lot of chefs are really doing this for you know, great personal gain. We I mean, don't hear of many chefs, you know, buying up expensive real estate in, in New York City or London or wherever as investment vehicles or anything like that. This doesn't really seem to be what they do. I think a lot of them, they, you don't get to this level or the level that they're at you know, without just loving what you do 110%. Uh, I just think that there needs to be <laughs> greater redistribution of wealth from the top down. I, I think it should be more, should be easier for common people to eat at these sorts of restaurants without sacrificing the integrity of what these restaurant experiences really stand for. I mean, I know this is probably betraying my politics a little bit here, but I mean, when we see the income inequality, you know, Gini coefficients aren't exactly going anywhere in the United States, at least. I mean, something just has to be done in order to, um, and, you know, I, I suppose I should qualify this and say, you know, I don't expect everybody on earth to be able to have, you know, 20 course tasting menus sort of whenever they would like. That's a bit extreme, but it should still be within the realm of possibility for any sort of working person. You know, if they're, they're getting married or it's a birthday or some special occasion. Yeah, absolutely. To go eat at one of these restaurants, even if it is a once in a lifetime moment, I, I think everybody should have a right to, to have that once in a lifetime moment. I mean, a lot of these hyperlocal foods, a, a lot of these food movements are, you know, it's some of these people's birthright. It almost seems to me to, to experience the food, um, the food of their ancestors, the food of their, you know, or the food of other people's ancestors. <laughs> it doesn't have to be exclusive here. But, you know, everyone should have the opportunity um, to really see what food can be at the highest level. I, I just think that's really important. Everyone deserves a meal, and indeed, every once in a while, a once-in-a-lifetime meal. Thank you, John. This is exciting work, extraordinary work. And listeners can read the full article in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, Volume 21.1, which is due out in February. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. Join us next week when Bob Valgenti talks with Brian Dale and Joita Sharma about their research, Feeding the City, Pandemic, and Beyond. Meant to be Eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. <laughs>
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.